Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 13th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, freshly returned from my late summer break and raring to go, thanks to Pat Leahy, who's here with us today for manning the ramparts for, for the last couple of weeks, Pat. And we are delighted to welcome the Minister for our Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Donoghue, Minister. Hello. Hugh, how are you? Great to see you. Great to be here. Um, to start with an easy question, or to hear in the news uh Today, again, yet again, and the entire board will be appearing before the Oroctus Committee uh, later today. So, what's your take on what's happening there at the moment and what needs to be done to fix it? This is just one of an array of issues uh, that will feed their way into the budget process. Uh, Where it is different to other matters is that uh, we have an organisation that we will need in the future. We need a viable RTE. We need a public service broadcaster. It is essential to our uh, society and to understanding of how democratic institutions function. Uh, but, but does RT do a good enough job of fulfilling that remit? Uh, so I leave, to be, to be frank, I'm not qualified enough to uh, uh, offer a view professionally on how they deliver against that remit. It's a question maybe for others to answer. As a viewer and a consumer of RTE, I feel in particular uh, the work on sport and history has a value that the market would not deliver. I don't believe it would be delivered in a broadcasting sense in the absence of a public service broadcaster. But where I do have very strong views and where it is my work is the economic and the funding aspect of all of this. Um, And what will happen is now with the array of differing figures and and needs that are being made available to me from RTE, I'm going to scrutinise them really, really carefully. Uh, We have an organisation called New Era. Just to explain briefly what that is to uh, most of your listeners who will not have come across New Era. They won't have come across it too often. Assume a high degree of knowledge on the part of our listeners. Well, then for the minority of listeners who haven't come across it, New Era is an independent financial advisor to the government. And it will provide assessments to to us, for example, the economic health of semi-state organisations. So they're going to look at the different issues that have been presented to me. And once that's done, there, once that is done, um, I'll bring recommendations to government on that, along with Minister Martin. There has been discussions in recent months with all the controversies that have erupted of you know what's at the root of all this. And some people, I think I include myself among them, have suggested that a contributory factor has been that the licence fee was has not been fit for purpose for a very long time and that some radical reform was needed. And in fact, it was proposed and it was on the table on and off at various points over the last 12 years or so. But it never happened. Well, um, I, don't, I don't accept the link. I don't accept that the uh, RTE television licence is a contributing factor to the governance challenges that have emerged. I don't believe you can. there's a causal link between the two of them. And even with the television licence, uh, while uh, we are, I know, in a world in which we point to the fact that the collection of it is going down, it is still a very big revenue stream for RTE. Uh, it's still well in excess of 100 million euro. And before the difficulties that we're now debating uh, were 
uh, engulfed RTE, the compliance in relation to the television licence was reasonably good. Uh, really, not compared, for example, to the United Kingdom, where it's, you know, I think there's only about 5% of people don't pay. We have over 15% not yeah, paying. They have a different model, though. So, for example, you can't do things like access to BBC iPlayer without having details of uh, the... Uh, uh, your um, your license and how you pay for your BBC services, uh, but the majority of those who could pay the television license were paying the television license. We need to regain their faith. We need to make the case for it again. Leaving alongside the fact, and I'll be open about it, you are required to pay it under law. I do accept that at the same time that all of the recent difficulties have undermined the support and faith that many do have in RTE. And that will take time to be fixed, but we do need to find a way of fixing it. And I'll play my part in that. But RT have put in a bid, even before all this, um, uh, all the controversy don't. RT said they needed an extra 35 million next year as, as, a, as a top of funding. We were, there was much talk about this at the Fianna Fáil thinking in recent days that, uh, that I attended. The, uh, the shortfall in licence fees projected to be something like 20 million this year, so that's immediately in excess of of fifty million, fifty fifty five million that RTE says that is uh, that it needs. Now, the sense I get from within government is, well, we're going to see what RTE says to us. They're going to come to us and give us a plan for reform, and then we will mark their homework and we'll see where we are on the fifty five million that they're looking for. Are you prepared to contemplate anything like that figure of state support for RTE? So you have to put that request in context. So RTE are running the deficit. But the deficit they're running at the moment isn't hugely different to the deficit they were running before the pandemic, when they then moved into surplus because of the magnitude of state support. And, you know, the moment I begin to get into what figures could be, it falls into the realm of all the other budget speculation decisions that are going to be made. And with the greatest respect to your questioning, Pat, I'm not going to go there. But there is a principle, though, I will make, and I'm happy to make the case for um, leaving aside uh, our own views as viewers, and thank God we all have different views regarding media content that we consume, the principle of a funded public service broadcaster, even with the difficulties that we've gone through, is one I want to make and it's one I'm willing to stand by. And at the right point, um, in consultation uh, with other colleagues in government, the government will respond back. Uh, but uh, before we do that, there is more work that needs to be done and that's underway. Pat mentioned the budget there. If we if we went up onto the, the roof of this building at the moment and looked out across Trinity College towards Kildare Street, there'd be a lovely assemblage of kites flying above Kildare Street, which we always expect at this time of year in the weeks uh, in the weeks before budget. We've heard all manner of things. A lot of talk about amendments to the USE uh, this week. Is that in prospect at all? Well, amendments and changes to the USC have already oh, happened. Cuts to the USC. Well, uh, cuts to the USC have already happened. Uh, so cuts to the USC happened in other budgets that I have done. And there are many different ways of delivering against the commitment that I believe in strongly that affordable changes in personal taxation play an essential role in helping those who are getting a wage increase off their employer keep that wage increase at a time of a cost of living huge difficulty that many are confronting. And, uh, but we'll should get... we not just accept that as a given? In fact, as I understand it, in some countries, that's actually baked into their taxation system, well, is that it's inflation linked. But is that not something separate from reducing USC across well, the I'm, board? I'm really glad to hear you say it should be accepted as a given, because for so long, actually, if you made the case for any form of a tax change, uh, and I've always made the case for ones that I believe are affordable, 
you were faced with a chorus of those who would argue against any kind of tax reduction or any kind of change. And to your point, I mean, what we are talking about here um, is differing ways in which indexation can be delivered. And I, I welcome the fact now that after many years, uh, the uh, role in this, particularly at a time of high inflation, in which the exchequer of the state uh, is receiving a higher level of tax revenue from, that we recognise that this can play a role. Uh, I did this in last year's budget when I moved the standard rate cut-off point up to €40,000, meaning for nearly the first time that somebody on a very average wage in our state is not paying the higher rate of income tax. Um, and you're right, we're at the time of the year in which there are kites and balloons are evident, but there'll be few of them coming out of the building I work in because myself and Michael McGraw will be putting the budget together. Well, your job is to cut the strings to the kites, isn't it, and let them fly away? Uh, well, that's a, a very bleak view. Or is it to reel them in and put them away until next okay. year? Well, it's a, 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 to overstrain a, the metaphor. A, a curiously bleak view of my job. Um, I mean, on one hand, um, you know, it's, it's a feature of a society, particularly all that we've gone through, that at budget time everybody makes the case what they want. And it's inevitable that that feeds through into the government system and then into your good selves. Uh, uh, but uh, I've been at this now since 2016, putting together budgets in different ways. And this is a particular one with a different context to other ones we've done. Uh, but we will get there. We'll put together a budget and we'll put together what I believe will be a sensible and good budget for the country. And there'll be lots of different events along the way, but we'll get there. All, all budgets are, are, are balancing acts to a greater or lesser degree. And you've done a lot of them, uh, as you refer to. But it seems to me, looking in from the outside, that... This balancing act is a little more difficult than others because of, uh, I suppose, two things, really, two principal dynamics pushing on one side of uh, of the scales. W- one is the point that we're at in the electoral cycle. It's maybe the last budget before uh, the next general election. There may be one more after this, but it may be. The other thing is the massive surpluses that the public finances um, are running. And so you have to balance those, yourself and Michael McGrath, have to balance that on one side, those those pressures for spending from your colleagues and for giveaways of various descriptions, whether they be tax cuts or once-off measures, as we saw last year, with what I think are your own more conservative instincts towards prudence and towards putting away uh, money for, for the longer term. Is it a different, am I right on that, as a different balancing act, a more difficult balancing act this year? So that is, uh, that question actually cuts to the heart of the budget dynamic at the moment. So you use two different fra- phrases. Is it more difficult or is it different? So maybe I might briefly just answer each of those. Firstly, is it more difficult? Uh, I believe the most difficult budgets I was ever involved in, and that was what also what Michael McGraw were the COVID budgets. Uh, the budgets that happened in 2020 and in 2021, particularly the first of those two. Because I think it is a great feature of our society and maybe even of human nature that massive events like that for many move into our history, move into events behind us. But the level of uncertainty about the basics of our society and our economy at that point were so high that framing a budget in that environment was by some measure the most difficult budgetary environment I've ever been involved in. But then to go on to this one, is it different? Absolutely yes. For the very reason that you said there, I accept 
that it is a difficult argument to make about uh, why should we not spend all of the money that is available to us today? Why should we not do it? And there's a school of thought that says, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing in politics. I disagree with that completely. I think that's an enormously reductive view of what politics is about. Politics, particularly for those of us who aspire to be in government, which I do, is about making decisions and then explaining the decisions. And I believe, even with the pressures we're going to touch on, there's such a really strong argument regarding why maintaining a budget surplus has served us well in the past, but could serve us even more in the future, possibly. But with respect, nobody is actually making the argument that we should spend all the surplus. This is, I think, what my distinguished colleague, Mr. Taylor, would refer to, uh, Cliff Taylor would refer to as a bit of pascaling, because nobody what, what, is actually... What is pascaling? No, nobody is actually... Oh, pas- 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 divert, diverting well, the question, diverting so, the question so, by so asking so another l- question. L- let me answer that question. Is anybody, uh, maybe is this anti-pascaling? So is anybody saying we should spend all of the 10 billion? No. What, 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 one or two are. But actually in the round, but in all of the different requests to, together, it would easily spend the entire surplus. And that's the point. But those requests are coming from your colleagues. Of course, they are coming from, you know, people in the public debate, from NGOs, from lobby groups and so, and so forth. But the... The, the the expensive requests are coming from the documents that I think, and maybe you might confirm this uh, for us, that all those asks from your ministerial colleagues have been finalised this week. And the sum total, if you were to grant all those, I grant you would be, uh, uh, might might spend your entire surplus. It would. But nobody is seriously making the case that the, that the entire surplus should be spent. Uh, the argument is about where the line is drawn. And you've chosen to draw it at somewhere, I'm guessing, that's going to end up around 10 or 11 billion between the two elements of the budget. So the point I made is that uh, if you look at all of the different demands that we are facing at the moment in government and outside of government, in the Dáil and outside of the Dáil, if the majority of them were to be mess, uh, the, the surplus would go. That's my key point. And maybe we are uh, differing only here by way of degree. But surely it's all about degree. I mean, now that we've depascaled the original question, isn't the question actually one about degree? It's about two billion one way, one point five the other way. Isn't that aren't well, those? No, aren't no, those no, not, not in politics the at the moment. It's about? not. So, but in reality, I mean, isn't that what so we're talking in, about? So, in you know, well, firstly, if I was to accept the premise of your argument, which which I don't, uh, there's a hell of a difference between a two billion euro surplus and a ten billion euro surplus in terms of what that means for our debt what that means, what could happen with inflation within our economy. But actually, the majority of the opposition I face in the Dáil every day are up for spending us. They're up for spending us. And they question even the philosophy of why we have a surplus. Like all oppositions, like Fine Gael in 2007. Uh, well, actually, in 2007, we would have had Richard Bruton calling out and questioning things like benchmarking. That was happening. He, but, 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 he, ho- did, ho- but he didn't present... Uh, an alternative to the model that was being the economic model that was being but 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 do, 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 do you do you accept you in what you said there that the uh, you know the actually there is a significant divide in our political system between the principle of running what are uh, at the moment medium sized surpluses are not having a surplus at all do you accept that I, I accept the fact but, that myself and Pat 
just did a, 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 a series of podcasts about the Bertie Ahern years. And when we came to those years between 2001 and 2007, that was that was a moment in Irish politics, not the first one, by the way, when the government in power was uh, extremely, um, did not take care of the people's finances properly and that everybody suffered as a consequence of that. And we all know, you, you know better than anybody in the room probably, all that all that history. So, And, and that is still, a, I mean, that almost came up or it was hinted at in the Irish uh, Financial Advisory Council's words on but some it, of these issues it, it over is the, last, a, it the is last couple of weeks. my most visceral experience. It's my defining experience of politics. Uh, starting off as a councillor in 2004, and then when I got into the Oireachtas from 07 onwards, the trauma on an individual level, beyond the big events of NAMA, the big events of going into an IMF programme, and what that meant for the lives of the people that I represent. And that is why a continual theme in the arguments that I've made, and there's ups and downs along the way, God knows you don't get everything right, which is that um, not running, not spending every cent that you have um, isn't a guarantee that there'll never be a bust. But it's the best insurance policy that we have if you're a small and open economy regarding how you can be resilient. And the best arguments that I can offer for it are actually the stuff that has happened to us recently. I remember when the pandemic hit uh, and uh, the number of people who said to me, well, actually, austerity is going to come back. Now, I'm not for a moment saying that it was the fact that we had a budget surplus on its own that helped our public finances recover quickly. There is, of course, the irrefutable context of what the European Central Bank did. But I would make the point and strongly argue that the fact that we were running a budget surplus then, the fact that we're running one again now, has meant that at a time in which a, um, we have so much to do, we have a cost of living challenge, the government at least is in a position to help back. And one of the reasons I was so eager to come on to this podcast is I read an article by your great co-contributor here, uh, Pass, which I completely disagreed with. Yeah, he, he told me you were a bit upset about uh, it. Though, of right? course, regarding the government not having uh, ideas, and maybe we'll come on to this in a moment, about it not making the case for its efforts, uh, all of which I tried to do. But one of the things that in the article that I wanted to make the case against is a made reference to the fact that the exchequer is in good condition, that the national finances are currently in surplus, as if that is some kind of just a background event that just happened. That is the feature of political choices. That's the feature of, of making the case for decisions, which has a well, profound effect on where we are now. It, it is, but it is also a consequence of decisions made by multinationals and perhaps more a consequence of decisions made by multinationals about their, about their tax affairs. Now, of course, you can argue that those decisions but that are made but, 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 because but, 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 of the tax the fiscal, environment the that tax, we're in. That's, yeah. So the two things go together. And I spent, you know, nearly six years working on this issue, particularly in the context of our own the huge changes in our corporate tax code that we are now making. And, it, and it, it's both. But one needs the other. You know, when we talk about the concept of, uh, I hear it more and more, of a windfall corporate tax receipt, the, the receipts that are coming in are ones that we cannot expect are going to last forever. But in turn, the reason those receipts are here in Ireland is because the companies are here in Ireland, which in turn is the result of political and policy choices, not all of which I've made, goes without saying. Predecessors over decades have made those choices as well. But there is a thesis and an argument regarding that model, uh, which I believe has played a vital role 
in the transformation of us. Can I ask you so about how that? Can, how, sorry, Hugh, can I just ask, ahead. just on that point. So how worried are you by last month's exchequer figures on corporate tax? my question. Is that, I'm sorry, Hugh, I should, I should have expected that you'd be on the ball. But what... What is that a canary in the coal mine moment? It it is. So the the moment to monitor is what will happen in November as well. And the reason why I say that is if you go back to what happened last August, last August we had an unusually high month in the payment of corporate tax receipts. And there is a couple of months that are really, really important for us. One is August, one is November. And of course the difficulty with that is November will happen after the budget. Um, in terms of understanding the impact of it. So it is something at the moment that, of course, I would be concerned about. Who could not be concerned to see a billion euros swing in a month? You'd have to be concerned. But to go beyond that, you'll definitely need November under your belt to see where you are. Can you, can you give us some insight into what might be driving such rapid swings? We know, I mean, one of the factors of this great success, which is this amazing windfall that we've been getting over the last few years and which is predicted to continue is that it's sort of unknowable. The predictions were way off over the last few years. They were yep. way off in the in the right direction as in even more money were, came yeah. in. Then suddenly, you know, a billion drops off a shelf yep. in August. It makes for rather unnerving instability, doesn't it? It, um, it certainly makes you cautious, which of course is again the, the point I was going back to earlier on. So can I explain what happens in an individual month? Um, in, 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 in truth, that's more a matter really for the Revenue Commissioner to say what's going to happen in an individual month rather than myself. Uh, because a factor in that could be then what happens then in November, that a payment, is a payment going to come on later in the year? But in relation to your broad point, can I explain the change that has happened in our corporate tax uh, revenue over the last number of years? That is related to the huge change that has happened in the global economy during that period. And there are two factors that I would pick out uh, that are really uh, help explain where we are. Firstly, there's a number of parts of the global economy that have done far better than they even would have might have expected themselves what's happened digitally and what's happened with life sciences. And there are parts of our economy that the Irish state has had a, a share in now for many, many decades. And then secondly, particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic, the upswing and the recovery in the fortunes of both states and, and large companies has been far bigger than many would have expected. And that in turn may have been driven by the huge amounts of demand that flow through the global economy after the rest, the huge rescues from the pandemic. And I think there are two big factors in explaining what's happened since 2020. But we're also, to an extent, relying on the way that these companies actually just manage their finances on a month-to-month -month basis, aren't we? It's about, year, year, year yeah. to year, yes. Yeah. And but that, is, that is stuff that is outside our control. Which goes back to the argument then for running a surplus, because it is. Um, it is it's, up to, it's, it's kind it's, of an argument for running a bigger surplus or for calming, government calming its jets on the, the one, on the, the, the whatever it is, ends up as four, five billion in, in one-off measures. Yeah. So firstly, can we explain it month to month? Very difficult to do. Can we explain it to year by year in terms of what happens with companies? I believe it will be the variation in the big two structure factors that I've just uh, outlined. And I've argued for many years that I believe at some point those factors will change. They'll go against us. To then go back to your point then, Pat, about is this an argument for running a, a bigger surplus? 
this then just goes back to my role and the role of Michael and my role in the past then as politicians as well, where we then recognised uh, all of the different competing demands that we have to respond back to. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we are, many of us are politicians that are, are immersed in our societies and our constituencies. It's, it's a big case to make the call at the moment for a 10 billion euro surplus. I think going beyond that at the moment would not be feasible. And you certainly couldn't increase capital investment if you were to do that. Pat referred to one-off measures. Is a one-off measure still a one-off measure if it happens two years in a row? Well, it's certainly harder to describe it as such anyway. <laughs> That's for certain, Hugh. Uh, and, um, uh, but on a less flippant note, uh, of course, what will be um, the context to all of this will be the fact that the conditions that led to the launch of these one-off measures are still with us. Not with us, perhaps in the intensity and in the speed of escalation they were a year ago, but everything is still more expensive than it was a year ago. And even though the rate of inflation is going down, prices have still gone up. Uh, so that context is still there. We're discussing prudent housekeeping here. It behoves me at this point to remind our listeners that if they don't subscribe to irishtimes.com, they may not have a podcast to listen to at some point in the future without prudent After husbandry. After all, we're not RTE. Indeed, prudent husbandry. Well, not quite. Husbandry on our on, on our part and indeed the uh, the much welcome subscriptions of our, of our listeners and readers. So remember, you can go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe to subscribe. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. And Pat, you wanted to bring up a big idea. Yeah, I mean, is it the case then that fiscal prudence is the government's big idea? You were critical of me for being critical of you about <laughs> describing this government as lacking in any obvious big ideas, you know, two or three big things that it would go to the electorate as and say that the electorate would know from observing the government that this is what they're about. Is it fiscal prudence? So what I was critical about in your argument was uh, both the lack of ideas, but also the point that you made there regarding there uh, being a lack of a belief that the argument can be won at election day. I believe the ideas are there. I believe the argument can be won. I believe this government will go to the country as a collection of different political parties. But I strongly believe uh, that in our different ways, we can make the case for this government serving again. In terms of what those ideas are and in terms of uh, what that argument would look like, okay? So, uh, uh, f for me, uh, the idea, but as important as ideas are, I think outcomes are even more important. Uh, the idea is uh, that we have a group of parties in the political centre that do differ, but are united in their view that the political centre is one that serves our country well and that can respond back to all the ills, all the difficulties that we have. That's what I believe the idea is. And in the age of raised voices and at times indeed competing and or simple arguments, I know to make the case for centrism at times or to make the case for moderation of itself can feel a little bit radical. But I believe the centre by and large has served our country well and I believe this is a government broadly of the centre. But then if you look at then what are the outputs that can make a difference then to turning that idea into a reality, uh, I'll just pick three that I believe we can make the case for. And we're nowhere near an election. We're nowhere near deciding what the arguments are going to be and what, you know, how they will be bought. Number one, this is a government that despite a pandemic, despite historic soaring inflation, will have built over 130,000 homes during its term in office and has the ability to build more. That's 130,000 homeowners, renters, families, households that now have a home they can live in, they can pay the rent on, 
they can pay a mortgage on that weren't there before, despite a pandemic, despite the cost of building a home going through the roof. Number two, we can make the case for um, an economy uh, that is able to deliver jobs now and more jobs for all those who need them, despite the extraordinary economic change that is taking place around us. And then thirdly, it's what's happening in the world of energy. Uh, this is now a, a country that 30% of our electricity needs are now being met in a renewable way. And I believe this is a building block uh, towards a country that will, I believe, has the ability to lead the green transformation um, of our part of the world here in Europe. And by doing so, create the economic resources that are capable of continuing to build living standards in our country. So if you were to press me against the wall about what are those three ideas at the moment, all of which I accept are kind of in the domain of how we support living standards in this country, how we create the resource for a better society, they're three alone that I would pick. If I might take the liberty of criticising you for criticising Pat for criticising you. <laughs> um, um... Well, but is this, what is the verb of Linehan? <laughs> what would it be, Pat? I would just observe that this is historically the most successful political period in the history of the state for Fine Gael. It will be coming up to 13 continuous years in, in power, which is unheard of since the foundation of the state for your party. But there's always a thing with parties, isn't there? I, I, I'm hard pushed to think of any party that has been in power that long that couldn't do the spell in opposition after that point. Is there not some truth in that we look at look at the departures from your parliamentary party, the people who we already know aren't going to run again and there may be there may be a few more announcing that there is a sense of a of of, of a loss of vigor perhaps the from over the course of the 12 years and it isn't that inevitable. You look completely stunned by this idea. It's never occurred to you. <laughs> of course I'm aware of the critique. Um it's just not one I personally believe in myself or about what my party can yet do and what the contribution that we can yet make. Uh, uh, I do not believe in the argument that periods in opposition offer windows of rehabilitation. Uh, and there are also examples all over the world. Uh, look at, the, for example, the Christian Democrats in Germany. Uh, look at some of the uh, political parties in the Netherlands who have made the case for being in government over consecutive periods. What I do accept is making the argument for a fourth term in government. Of course, you need to have a very compelling reason and a compelling argument regarding why the people of Ireland should decide to elect you to government for the next time. But I think before you get to that point, you need to demonstrate two qualities. Firstly, that you want us, and our party, I believe, does. And secondly, that you've a, a track record of being in government that has made a difference, that earns you the right to make a case about the future. You need to be able to do those three things. And from my point of view, I'm certain that when we get to that point, still quite a bit away, we'll be able to make that argument. I find myself a little unsure. Taking on board your, your three well-expressed points there earlier on, Pat had an interview with, with the Taoiseach, which we uh, covered in this podcast uh, a couple of months ago, I think it was now, Pat. And that was on foot of a, a sort of a, a kind of a fairly standard right-of-centre proposition from, from three junior ministers from your party about a certain approach to taxation. Um, the Taoiseach made certain noises about, you know, Ireland squeeze middle. Nothing seems to have come of that, though. It, it seems to have been more performative than in any way real. Uh, but we are going to be doing a budget. And I've made the point, look at what happened since the last budget we've done in relation to this. Look at the changes that's happened in relation to affordability of childcare, uh, where we've reduced the cost of childcare up, up to a quarter 
to help families who find themselves in a situation that they need childcare, uh, uh, but they don't access the normal kind of social welfare supports that can be there. Look at the changes that we've made in taxation of moving, you know, as I said, it's the first time ever you can earn up to €40,000 and not pay the higher rate of income tax. So the next opportunity to turn that point of communication into a further example of delivery would be the budget. But I would go back to the budget we've just done. I'd look at the changes in childcare and in personal taxation alone. And I'd say they're examples of how we are trying to respond back to help that very wide group of our society and our economy. Every party that runs for re-election, their slogan encapsulating their pitch to the, uh, uh, to the electorate is some version of a lot done, more to do, which is one that Bertie Hearn famously used to some considerable effect in 2002. But it's always some version of that, pointing to the, uh, the achievements in office and to their plans for the future. Do you think it's going to be difficult for, uh, for the parties that comprise the current coalition to make a joint sort of appeal to the future? Because I think I know what you guys will say in the a lot done section, but it's a harder, it's harder for a coalition of this nature, I think, to do the more to do bit. So I think you make a fair point, and I did touch on this earlier on, the fact that you have three different political parties, that while they have a lot in common, there's still three different political parties, does mean that the nature of the propositions they will offer about the future will all be, a, will all be different because they will all be maintaining their identity when they go to the electorate. And I think that is a, uh, that will be the case. Um, But I would still argue amidst all of that, there will be a commonality, just to go back to your point there regarding ideas, because at the end of the day, politics is about ideas, implementing them, then explaining them as well. I believe there will be a commonality in that framework. That is certainly one I want to make the case for and can make the case for uh, having worked in Ireland and will work again in the future. And that commonality is the fact that this is a state uh, that, despite many difficulties, despite many mistakes along the way, has played a role in the transformation of our living standards, even our life expectancies, what we believe we can get from our own lives over our 100 years. We are now facing into a period of really, really, really profound change with many different ignitions of us, artificial intelligence, what's going to happen in Europe, And tragically, what's already happening to our climate. And I believe a common contemporary centrist philosophy, which the three different political parties in different ways contribute to, I I strongly believe will deliver that vision of the future. In a way that this this is, I I think, kind of one of the, the big fundamental dividing lines of... Irish politics at yes. present, and it's how that has yeah. changed. The big dividing line used to be yeah. the civil war parties, as, yeah. uh, as, as so-called, right? So, but the big dividing line, it seems to me, in Irish politics, or one of the big dividing lines, is between the people who are, are on one side of the line who think the state has been, by and large, a success. It's got an awful lot better in the last 25, 30 years, notwithstanding some of the challenges that, uh, that, that, that it has addressed uh, along the way, and, uh, and that... You know, things are gradually getting better and will continue to get better. And those people feel they have a stake in that society. 
There's a whole bunch of people on the other side of that yes. dividing line and they feel that the state has not been a success because it hasn't been a success for them. They're stuck in their parents' box room. They may have decent yes. jobs, but they have very little prospect or they feel they have very little prospect of owning their own home. Many of them feel like they're compelled to emigrate because of the uh, the circumstances in which they, they find themselves. And, like, w- would you accept that that group is now bigger than ever it was before. And I think that must play some part in our judgment on the success or otherwise of the of, of your parties and government. And I encounter this every day in my constituency work and I do accept it's a group that has been bigger uh, than it has been for some time in my political life uh, who uh, uh, question at all uh, whether the state has the ability to deliver against what their own understandable expectations are. The expectation that you'll be able to afford to pay your rent, the expectation that you might at some point a little later in life be able to own your home. And this is why, like, when I make the case for the... And, and in a way, sorry to jump in, but in a way, this the, the sensible centrism that, that you espouse has kind of failed a lot of those people. Oh, and this is why I am, despite the vigour of our debate here, which is great, you know, I make the case for a degree of humility about the political centre, because I'm making the case for us. I'm making the case for why I believe it can help us get through challenges in the future, make the the most of opportunities. Um, But the centre itself also has to acknowledge uh, its own failings and its own deficiencies and must do so. Uh, And um, I think there are a couple that I'm acutely aware of from 20 years of representing the people of Dublin Central. They've been good enough to elect me um, in different ways. The first one is uh, for too many, uh, they feel that the institutions of the state and politicians like me haven't delivered against the expectations that I just acknowledged there a moment ago. And not to acknowledge that would be disrespectful um, and inauthentic of the huge challenges that so many of those face that I serve. But secondly, and this is kind of a broader um, failing uh, that we have to address and I want to address, for many the concept of the political centre became explicitly associated with the status quo. It became associated with the maintenance of the order as it is, as a degree of conservatism. And um, that, with all that is going on in the world from a consumer perspective, not to mention all the other things that we've talked about, um, has been is a big challenge for the argument that people are like like me are making. And it's a failure of the political process as it's worked over the last 10 years or so, isn't it? That on one level, by international standards, we live in one of the wealthiest states in the world. By comparison, we're right up there. But that, yes, I walk through your constituency because I walk through it every day. I try, I've bumped into you once or twice walking walking the streets of, of Dublin 1. And you don't see that on those streets often. And in fact, it's a subject that's been in the news quite a bit over the over the last few weeks. I think there's a, a new task force was announced last week, but there was a task force, which I think has had some success in it's the Northeast It has City. had some success. But task force after task force are in a way are, you know, indicate the, the depth of the problems which the state has failed to address in marginalised communities and areas like, like that. It also indicates my strong view that you never stop trying. You keep on trying, you keep on trying different things. And without going into the kind of the, the, the nature of what is happening there with the North Inner City too much, though I'd welcome it, we have a structure in place in the North East Inner City Task Force now held by, led up by Jim Gavin, 
that I, like, I, I strongly believe that in many years' time you'll see the benefits from. And in fairness to our media and, the, and your good selves, you've covered off what we're doing in primary schools there. Uh, the massive way we've changed how we support our youngest. And the benefits of that will not be apparent until you and I meet somewhere in Dublin 1 in another decade's time. But what is absolutely apparent is in the period in between, uh, we need to do even more, particularly in the city centre part of the north inner city, to respond back to what is happening. And that is what we are doing at the moment. Um, and then in relation to the point that you make overall then again uh, uh, about the you know, the failings of the centre and where we are over the last decade, it, it does go back to the discussion that we had earlier on about financial stability. You know, we lost our financial stability for many, many, many years. We lost our solvency. And when that happens, it casts such a dark, long-lasting shadow over the ability of an economy and state to do basic things like build more homes. We lost our construction sector. We lost the ability to pay for homes to be built directly ourselves. And it's taken years to get that back, which goes back again to, and you know, Pat put a very interesting question to me earlier on, like, is fiscal prudence the only argument that you have to offer? And we need to offer an awful lot more than that. But I'd still make the case in the absence of financial stability, all the other things you want to do, you can't do. I'm going to give you a last question here, Pat. I think... um but you might agree that one of the failures of the, the, the political centre has been in the high levels of child poverty in this country. And the ESRI published a piece of research last week which made the case for a special child poverty payment. You'll be familiar with it. That they say it could lift 40,000 children out of poverty. The cost of it was about €600, million Euros a year. Are you persuaded by that idea that a a dramatic move or a substantial move on something like that, childcare or, or child poverty or something like that, is an appropriate use of a piece of that surplus. So um, uh, uh, the specific idea that you're referring to, we go back to where we were at the beginning of the, beginning of the interview. Like my desk at the moment is just uh, full of different ideas regarding how this money can be spent. And, the, the, and, no, and, and no, that is one of them. There's no shortage of ideas. Not, of course there isn't. But, what, but this what, seems what, to be what, what I do accept, uh, and I do accept the premise that you are making there, but I can't comment on the idea itself, which is the whole purpose of having financial stability and exchequers that have money within them is not an end in itself. You know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking about you know, what, what, what can I do? Uh, you, know, you know, how do I see a surplus just as an end in itself? The point of having these resources is then to help our society. And I, and, and I do believe that where we are with child poverty, where we are with the quality of life of our youngest girls and boys, um, uh, uh, particularly in disadvantaged communities, is something the government can do more on and should do more on. As you know, the teacher has put together a unit on this in his own department because he recognises that. And I go back, you know, to the kind of ideas, and this is just an example of work that is underway. Like in the northeast inner city, uh, the work of people like Josephine Bleach in the National College of Ireland, where they are going in to families who have baby infants to support them in the parental journey and to support their children. And these are the ideas that are invisible and below the surface that change the journeys of lives. 
the City Connects idea that we now have in the northeast inner city, where when you get into junior infants and beyond, targeted and further developed learning plans are put in place for every kid. That, that for me, is uh, an example of what we're doing in the northeast inner city that in turn is enabled by financial stability that we need to do more of. I said it was the last question, but I lied. I'm going to ask you one more, one more <laughs> question. There has been speculation on and off over the last few years that you might see a life for yourself outside electoral politics in the, in the not too distant future. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a question that's put to me on a reasonably regular basis uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, can I imagine life beyond politics? Absolutely and easily. Can I imagine my life in the time ahead uh, doing anything but politics? That's what I want to do. Um, I'm not one of these people. I've never set a limit on, from an age point of view regarding how long I'll be in politics. Um, Unlike uh, the T-shirt did once upon a time. He did, didn't, didn't he? he? Actually, yeah. Did, I, yeah. I, I, I haven't done that. I, I'm probably a bit. I'm a bit older than him, Pat. So I was a bit cautious <laughs> about setting such a such a target. Um, can I imagine life after politics? Yes, of course I can. Uh, but for the time ahead of me, uh, it's doing what I'm doing. It's what I want to do, and it's what I, I work morning, noon, and night at it, and I enjoy it. Um, things like this. It's about making the case and trying to make the decisions to back it up. Pascal Donahue, thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We'll be back in your feeds very soon indeed. Until then, thanks very much for listening.